0: Well, good morning, church. If you guys do have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll have the verses up on the screen this morning as well, but I'd love to have have the Word in front of you opened up as well. All right, well, years ago, experts and theologians and philosophers from around the world gathered in England to have a conference uh, comparing the different religions— That are around the world and a debate broke out as to what was unique about Christianity. What was unique about the Christian faith? I mean, is there anything really that unique about it that that we believe as Christians or is it just the same as all other religions just put together in a little bit different packaging? And maybe you've thought that as well. I mean, aren't just we all worshiping kind of the same God? What's the difference between all these different religions that are out there? And so the experts started debating, and at first they asked, you know, was it the incarnation that makes Christianity unique? God putting on flesh, coming to earth, Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Is that what made Christianity unique? unique, but they found that some other religions have versions of God's taking on human form as well. And so maybe that wasn't really it. And then someone suggested the resurrection. Was it the resurrection? What we celebrate this morning? Is this what necessarily made Christianity unique and set it apart from all other religions? But they found that other religions as well had some accounts of people returning from the dead. And so the debate goes on and on until uh, C.S. Lewis wanders into the room. Which I'm not sure if you're having an important meeting like that, you know, why don't you wait for C.S. Lewis to get there? Why wasn't he there from the beginning? I don't know. But C.S. Lewis wanders into the room and he says, and I quote, What's all the rumpus about? (laughs) Which can we just not all acknowledge that rumpus is a very underused word and we need to recirculate that one back into our daily conversation? He says, What's all the rumpus about? And they tell him what they're debating, you know, what, what makes Christianity unique, what sets it apart. And Lewis responds with a, oh, that's easy. And he goes to the board and writes the word grace. And it was a mic drop, chalk drop moment it's grace. And all the experts quickly agreed. You see, all other religions, all other belief systems, all other ways of life offer you ways to work for or earn an approval from a deity. But it is only Christianity. It is only the worship of the one true God revealed to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ that says, no, 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 you cannot work for approval from God. You cannot earn it. You can only receive it. It's only by God's grace that you can be approved and accepted by God. Grace is God's undeserved favor, his unmerited favor. And for followers of Jesus, it is now God's grace that defines our past and our present and determines our future. You see, if you do not belong to Christ, it is your own works that still define you. What you have done defines who you've been, who you are, and who you are going to become. And listen, no matter how good works, how, how no matter how good of works you have, God's word tells us that we have all fallen short of what God has called us to and created us for. And therefore, not not. The best of us in here wants to stand before a holy God and be judged by our own works. And so this morning, whether you've been a Christian for 30 years or whether you become one today, I've got good news to proclaim to you. Because some of you in here are living and believing that it is your own works that have determined who you were and who you are and who you are going to become. Your life motto could essentially be summarized like this. By the works of my hands, I am what I am. Is that your life motto today? Some of you have never received the grace of God while others of you need to be reminded of the grace of God. Because while maybe at one time you believed that you were saved by grace, you're not still standing on grace. And as we read through 1 Corinthians, part of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul is going to give us a better life motto to live by, which I want you guys to be looking for that. As we are reminded of God's grace, And then we will look at and see all the results of God's grace. How God's grace saves and transforms and resurrects us. And so that's where we're going today. I want you to be reminded of God's grace. And then I want you to see and experience the results of grace. Let's pray and let's ask the Lord for the Lord's help. Father God, we do ask for your help this morning that you would give light to us. As we proclaim and receive your word. Father, help us see clearly what it is you would want us to see this morning. Father, as we are reminded of and we see the results of your grace, I ask that you would give faith to those that are lacking it. And I ask that you would give assurance to those whose faith is in you as we stand upon the truth of Christ's resurrection. For Jesus, it is your resurrection that proves your sacrifice for sin has been accepted. The claims of justice have been satisfied. The enemy has been disarmed. We have a living Savior interceding for us right now, and we have the promise of a future resurrection. Father, show us the glory of your grace and the truth of Christ's resurrection. It's in Jesus' name we pray all this, and all God's people said, amen. Well, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain." We are reminded here of the gospel, the good news that through Jesus Christ, God saves sinners, and that this gospel is to be preached, it is to be received, and it is to be what we stand upon. Well, well, what else is in the gospel, in this good news, you might ask? That's a good question. The scripture tells us. Look at verse 3. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. We celebrated this Friday night here at our Good Friday gathering that Jesus took what we deserved. Our sins had been paid for, had to be paid for, and they were paid for on the cross of Christ. Well, what is sin? That's maybe a, let's start there. What is sin? Sin is turning from the desires of God, either through our thoughts, our attitudes, or our actions. All right, sin is turning from the desires of God with our thoughts, attitudes, or actions, and we have all, we've all done it. God's word tells us that we have all sinned. And in our sins, we rightly deserved punishment and judgment from God. We rightly deserved the death penalty. We deserved to die. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, came and died for our sins. He took what we deserved, and He died, God's word says, according to the Scriptures meaning that this was the plan of God all along. God's plan did not spiral out of control, and Jesus did not just happen to die. He didn't just end up dying. No, this was the plan from the beginning, and Christ obediently carried out the plan. But we don't just celebrate this weekend, Good Friday, that he died. We celebrate today that he did not stay dead. Look at verse 4 that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And this is what we celebrate today. This is what we celebrate really every Sunday, that yes, he died, yes, he was buried, but on that third day, death could not hold him, and he was resurrected. And his resurrection proves that he is truly the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh. His resurrection proves that his sacrifice for our sins was acceptable to the Father. And now for those whose faith is in him, we have been justified. We have been declared right with God. Our sins have been dealt with. His resurrection means that the enemy has been disarmed. His resurrection means that we have a living Savior who now serves at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. And his resurrection means that we will one day follow in his footsteps and be resurrected as well. And we could probably stop there this morning, but let's keep going. Verse 5, And that he appeared to Cephas, the Aramaic name for Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of them who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This is the gospel that is to be preached, that is to be received, that is for us to stand upon. That God saves sinners. And this salvation was accomplished by Jesus, who lived the life of obedience that we failed to live, who died on the cross for our sins and who three days later rose from the dead, defeating Satan's sin and death. And it is not a salvation that we work for. It is a salvation that Christ has accomplished for us. And it has come to us to be received, not by our own works, but by God's grace. God's grace. And you might be thinking, sure, Christ can accomplish salvation for other people, but if you knew me, you'd know I'm way beyond that grace. That gospel might be powerful enough for some people, but not for me. Or, or maybe you have a neighbor or a family member or a coworker that you think the grace of God could never save and transform them, so why even bother sharing it with them? Or maybe... You've been a Christian for 30 years. And you think, oh yeah, I know about all that grace stuff. But I've moved beyond it. I've moved on to the deeper, more intellectual truths and doctrines. And yet what we learn from the Apostle Paul's life, who is writing this letter to the church in Corinth, is that no one is too far gone for God's grace. And and no one moves beyond their need for God's grace. This is what we learn from the Apostle Paul, that no one is too far gone for God's grace, and no one moves beyond their need for God's grace. The person living in just maybe obvious, outward, external rebellion is never too far gone for God's grace. And the church going Chick-fil-A, hobby-lobby-loving person never moves beyond their need for God's grace. For what does Paul say? What does he have to say here in verse 9? Look at verse 9. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 10, But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. You see, the Apostle Paul, before he encountered Jesus and the grace of God, he was a persecutor of the church. He was going around putting Christians in prison. He approved of Christians being killed simply for Christians being Christians. Paul had a past Paul had a past and you and I have a past as well and it's okay to admit that in fact it's kind of freeing to be able to admit that and so let me help you get the conversation going a little bit uh uh, this morning everyone I want you to turn to your neighbor and tell them neighbor Neighbor. come on now all right I want you everyone to turn to your neighbor and say "Neighbor." neighbor I have a past good good and before you encountered the grace of god it had been your own works that had defined who you had been who you are and who you are becoming but listen no one's past is so bad that they are beyond the saving and transforming power of god's grace And no one's present spiritual maturity has moved beyond needing to rest in and stand upon God's grace every day. And when Paul says that by the grace of God I am what I am, He is specifically talking about, in this context, his call to apostleship. It is all by God's grace that he's been called to it. But it is the same grace that every Christian experiences. And therefore, the motto of every Christian could certainly be, By the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Not by the works of me I am what I am, but by the grace of God I am what I am. By the grace of God I am not who I was. If you wanted to follow up that conversation with your neighbor that I got started after the service, you can say, By the grace of God I am not who I was. By the grace of God I am not yet who I am becoming. But by the grace of God, I am who I am. John Newton, he knew a thing or two about grace. In fact, he wrote probably one of the most famous hymns ever written, Amazing Grace. He was born in the early 1700s in London. His mom died when he was six years old. And so at an early age, he had to join his father in his occupation, and his father was a sailor. And all the bad stereotypes you can think of with sailors, which I'm not sure if there are any good stereotypes you think of when you think of sailors, but think about all the bad stereotypes you have with sailors that fit John Newton and his father. Newton himself said that he had lived a godless life. He had no fear of God at all. He lived how he wanted to live, engaging in every sort of sin you could think of. And in his life, at one point, he was cast off from his ship onto a small island off the coast of West Africa, and he ended up becoming enslaved there. The people put him into slavery, and he was treated so badly that even the African slaves were trying to smuggle him food. They were showing compassion on him. He eventually then was freed from slavery. However, that didn't yet wake him up to the grace of God. He then became a captain of a slave ship, which later in life, after coming to Christ, he greatly regretted, and he actually would later join William Wilberforce in opposing it. But I think it's safe to say that John Newton had a past. But one night out at sea, he awoke to a violent storm. And for two days straight, the crew battles this storm, trying to get the water, uh, you know, you know, trying to not let the boat fill up with water. Some of the crew is getting swept away out at sea. They thought for sure the boat was going to capsize. They thought they would all be doomed. And so what happens many times in life when storms come our way, we start to reevaluate our life a little bit. And John Newton found a Bible, and he started reading, and he came across Luke 11, verse 13, which we'll have up on the screen. He came across this verse, which Jesus says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And John Newton said, Hey, if this book be true, The promise in this passage must be true as well. I must therefore pray and ask God for the Holy Spirit, and if it be of God, he will make good on his word. And Newton's life would never be the same after that. He had encountered the grace of God. You see, God's grace is not just his undeserved favor for salvation. God's grace is also the giving of the Holy Spirit for transformation, right? God's grace is not just his undeserved favor for salvation. God's grace is his gift of the giving of the Holy Spirit for transformation. And so my question for you is, have you received the Holy Spirit? Have you asked the Father to send him to you? This is what it means to be a Christian, to trust Christ, and to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, as I said before, sometimes when we talk about grace, all the believers in the room wrongly think that they have permission to check out on me. And so listen here, believer. May you remember that both your salvation and your transformation are all of God's grace. You need God's grace for all of it. You see, the Christian who's been a Christian for a long time has a tendency to, yes, enjoy God's grace for salvation, but then go back to works and working for their transformation. But the whole of the Christian life is to be one that is standing upon the gospel of grace. It is all God's grace. God's grace for our salvation, God's grace for our transformation as he sends to us the Holy Spirit. It's all God's grace. And therefore, this morning, both the unbeliever and the believer need to be reminded of God's grace to receive it and to enjoy it for both your salvation and your transformation. Oh, church, be reminded, receive and be reminded of his grace today. But now we must also look at the results of grace. What sort of fruit does this grace produce? What kind of results of grace can we expect to see in the world and in our lives? Look back at 1 Corinthians verse 12. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. He writes, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Today we gather to celebrate that Christ has been raised from the dead But there were some in the Corinthian church that had started to say that there was no resurrection. That there there was no resurrection of Christ and there was no resurrection of believers upon Christ's return. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. He has been resurrected. I have seen him and he appeared to all these eyewitnesses. Our faith is centered on resurrection. And if Christ has not been raised, then my preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain and you are still in your sins and... And those believers who have passed away have perished. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 20. But in fact, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. But in fact, church, Christ has been raised from the dead. And because he has risen, yes, not only is he now interceding for us at the right hand of the Father, not only is he ruling and reigning as the rightful King of kings and Lord of lords until all his enemies are made his footstool, not only that, look at the results of this grace. Not only has he been raised from the dead, but he is now the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep meaning he's the first of a kind. He's the first of many resurrections to follow. You see, this morning, we don't just celebrate the resurrection of Christ 2,000 years ago. We also celebrate the results of his resurrecting grace, that his resurrection has secured our resurrection as well that his resurrection was the first of many resurrections to come. When someone who belongs to Christ passes away, we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. They go to heaven and they dwell with him there. However, upon his return, upon his second coming, believers' bodies will be resurrected, and they will be given new resurrected bodies to live with him forever. Oh, what glory, church, that the grace of God results in the resurrection of those who belong to Christ. And this scripture is so sweet for us this morning. Because I know on a holiday, it typically brings up memories of loved ones who have passed away who are no longer here to celebrate with us, who are no longer here to carry out maybe some family traditions that they were a part of. But this scripture is so sweet because it reminds us that those who are in Christ who have passed away, they have not perished. They are with Christ, awaiting the resurrection And we will see them again. We will see my older sister, Marie, again. We will see Kay again. We will see Marilyn again. Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits... Of those who have fallen asleep. And some of you remember our brother James, who was a part of our church at the very beginning. When James first started coming to church, he was very standoffish, to put it, maybe to put it lightly. Yeah, yeah, okay. very hesitant to want to talk or share anything with anyone, he he came across as a bit gruff and harsh. It was months before we could even get a full name out of him. Maybe over a year before we could get a phone number from him. And so for those of you with some commitment issues, not wanting to fill out our Connect card, listen, we have trained for this. Like you're, you're JV compared to James. We've been through things with James, right? And the only time he would come talk to me in those, those early times would be to complain about the kids in the service who were causing a rumpus. I'm trying to use that word more. We are very good at causing a rumpus. And during the sermons, he would make me so nervous because he would just be pacing in the back. We didn't have those back chairs set up, and he would just be pacing. Now, those of you who pace with young kids, that does not make me nervous. I understand why you were doing it, but this was just a single guy who no one really knew, and he's pacing in the back. And I'm thinking, I'm just preaching and thinking like, something's going down with this guy. I don't know what's happening here. But then what did we see happen? We saw the results of God's grace in his life. And he slowly but surely started softening and started sharing more of his life with us. He slowly but surely got less annoyed with the rumpus of the kids and was actually really encouraged by it that the next generation was being taught about the glory and grace of God. He went from not wanting to talk to anyone to somehow serving as a greeter out in the lobby. And then many of you walked alongside of him when he got diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer. And one of the last times I saw him, he had such a peace. He was ready to see Jesus. He was ready to see his risen Lord. And what he mainly wanted to talk about was to make sure the gospel was going to be preached at his funeral. And that our church would carry on the ministry that God had called us to. And yesterday afternoon, I was trying to remember what I preached or shared at James's funeral. And I, I found it on the computer, I pulled it up. And wouldn't you know, it was 1 Corinthians 15. But, church, James has not perished. Because of the grace of God, he is with the Lord, and he's awaiting the resurrection. And when we gather on a day like today and celebrate specifically that Christ rose from the dead, we also celebrate that because the grace of God, our brother James is going to be resurrected as well. And your loved ones, your family members, your friends, those who were in Christ, you know they will be resurrected as well. A man like James who had been saved and transformed by God's grace is dwelling with him right now by God's grace and one day will be resurrected by God's grace. And we will see him again. John Newton, coming back to him, he was also a man who had been saved and transformed by God's grace. He would eventually leave his life as a sailor and he'd become a beloved pastor and a hymn writer. And in his old age when he could no longer re- see to read, he had someone read the scriptures to him every day. And he had someone read to him this passage from 1 Corinthians 15. And they read to him 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And when John Newton heard that, he remained silent for a short time, and then he responded with these words. He said, I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I might be, considering my privileges and opportunities. He said, I am not what I wish to be. God, who knows my heart, knows I wish to be like him. I am not what I hope to be. Before long, I will drop this clay tabernacle to be like him and see him as he is. Yet, I am not what I once was, a child of sin and a slave of the enemy. He said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And may we be able to say that as well, church. By the grace of God. I am what I am. Let's pray.